we have a um, wonderful ID class called the Bible Project. This is a little PSA, by the way, if you're looking for a class at 9 a.m. Uh, and downstairs across from the food pantry, just show up. Okay, PSA over. We have a class called uh, the Bible Project, and they watch these videos um, from this ministry that's really got a, a, a Bible education mentality. They're really interested in helping people understand the Bible better. Uh, if you just have some free time and you can't come to the class, just Google Bible Project and watch some of their theme videos. They're really quite incredible. One of those theme videos tackles the issue of, of justice, uh, and it does a wonderful job setting up the problem uh, that our world finds itself in. And so I want to begin this morning by playing just a short clip of that video. On page one, humans are set apart from all other creatures as the image of God. Yeah, God's representatives who rule the world by his definition of good and evil. And this identity, it's the bedrock of the Bible's view of justice. All humans are equal before God and have the right to be treated with dignity and fairness no matter who you are. And that would be nice if we all did that. But we know how the world really works. And the Bible addresses that too. It shows how we are constantly redefining good and evil to our own advantage at the expense of others. Yeah, self-preservation. And the weaker someone is, the easier it is to take advantage of them. And so in the biblical story, we see this happening on a personal level, but also in families and then in communities and in whole civilizations that create injustice, especially towards the vulnerable. But the story doesn't end there. Out of this whole mess, God chose a man named Abraham to start a new kind of family. Specifically, Abraham was to teach his family to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Okay, really briefly, I, I think that sums up the situation we find ourselves in. We're in a world with chaos and injustice and evil and suffering, and we have been called to be this people that's different, right, that lives with justice and righteousness. So the question I have is, what does that look like? How, how do we get to um, that justice and righteousness? And, and I want to suggest there are two visions for, for how that might be accomplished, and, and I'm going to call them two kinds of hope. There's what I would call the, the secular hope, and there's the prophetic hope, okay? The secular hope and the prophetic hope. And, and I think the secular hope is, is so familiar and so common that sometimes we don't even notice that we're thinking in that way. The secular hope, really simply worded, is that the way we fix the world is by winning, and particularly, usually, by winning through power. And, and that idea that things will be better if we win is kind of everywhere in our culture. Good, bad, it's, it's kind of all over the place, right? So um, it's in our entertainment. Right? We, don't, we don't go to watch people get together in large stadiums to cooperate, right? We want to see the Packers beat the Rams, amen? Okay. Uh, I don't know if there's any Rams fans, if so, I apologize. Um, we we do this in our, our game shows, right? Who's the smartest on Jeopardy? We, we do this in, in um, our history, right? The history is the story of, of what country beat what country and took over what land. And, and, and this idea of kind of winning and, and winning through power being the way we fix things trickles down into our individual lives and all the way up to, to the way we think about our nations and, and world events, right? I want to 
I want to win the argument. I want to win the promotion. I want to win the election. I want to win the war. I want to win the war to end all wars. And, and that idea is really compelling because it, it makes some sense, right? If we, can just, if we can just stop the bad guys, beat them down, if we can be stronger than they are, then, then everything will work out fine, right? That's the secular hope that we're going to win. Uh, this shows up in, in insidious, simple ways in our lives. So when Krista and I first got married, by the way, my wife is um, with her family today and Thanksgiving, and I'm hoping that they're not watching the service. Um, when, when my wife and I first got married, um, for about, I don't know, three, four, five months after we got married, we, we had this low-level conflict about the forks. And some of you are aware of our fight about the forks, but if you're not, um, this, this was about the direction the forks go in the dishwasher, okay? And there, there is a right and a wrong in this, all right? I won't tell you, but there's a right and a wrong. Uh, some of us were under the impression that they should go tines down so that when you reach into the dishwasher to take something out, you don't get stabbed with the fork, right? And some of us were under the impression that they should go tines up because when they're up higher, they get cleaner, Okay? So um, for months after we got married, I would put the forks in tines down, and um, my wife would put them in tines up, and I would notice. And because I was a loving, supportive husband, I wouldn't say anything to her. I would just flip the forks over, right? (laughs) And because she was a loving, supporting wife, she would come behind me and flip them back. Uh, And I'm not kidding. We did this for months until finally I realized I'm not very smart. It took me that long to realize what was happening, and and I caught her flipping the forks. And and as she flipped the forks, I flipped my lid, and I said, what are you doing, right? Um, Now I know why I've been fighting this battle. And and it was not my best moment, okay? Um, And in that moment, I was really concerned with winning, right? There is a right way to do this, and we're going to do it the right way, and, and of course, that way is my way. Um, and, and I realized several things um, from that particular moment. Number one, I realized that sometimes it's more important to be righteous than right. Uh, and number two, I realized um, that in a relationship, um, winning isn't the goal, right? Winning isn't the goal. By the way, we do this with our kids, Right? When, when our kids start frustrating us and they're, they're whatever, they're talking during the middle of the sermon or whatever it might be, and we just, we just let them have it because we want to win, right? Um, I, I, you need to conform to my way. Um, we, we do this in all areas of our life. Um, I, I, I know this is a, um, a hot topic. We just had the, the case um, about Kyle Rittenhouse and the, the in Kenosha. Um, and I had a conversation with um, some family members about that trial this weekend. And um, it, it occurred to me that the people that got into the news, the, the, the rioters who were out to actually do violence to property or people, and the folks that showed up like Kyle with weapons to, I guess, threaten violence if you tried to do violence, um, they all had kind of the same operating procedure, right? The same general mentality, which was we're going to win, and, and we're going to win with power. And if you come to your thing, we're going to do our thing harder and faster and stronger until we beat you. And I, and I wonder if there's something flawed underneath 
everybody in that system, right? I know there were people in Kenosha that weren't out to do violence, right? But, but maybe there's something flawed under both sides in that system. And maybe it's this idea that we're going to fix things by winning with power. Uh, Daniel, in the prophet Daniel, there's a vision of these successive beasts, these monstrous things that represent empires. And part of the, the, the premise of that vision is that as one empire is conquered by another, somebody else rises up to conquer that one, right? The, the Assyrians are conquered by the Babylonians, and then the Babylonians by the Greeks, and then the Greeks by the Romans, and it's just one after another. And we think, hey, maybe there'll be a war to end all wars, and we can just win it. It hasn't worked out like that. And I think about the person with the most power, the person with the most capacity to win through power. And I think, isn't it shocking that that's not the way that God goes about trying to fix our broken world? So if the secular hope is that we win through power, I think the prophetic hope is that we become peacemakers. I think the prophetic hope is that um, we establish this thing that Deb mentioned earlier that we call the shalom, the, the peace of God. And, and it's really quite different than winning. Listen again for just a little bit of the language that we hear in Isaiah. Isaiah says, um, I'm going to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. That's pretty awesome to hear. Considering all the masses that God's people have made, um, we're going to be a joy and a delight to God. God says, before they call, I will answer. While they're yet speaking, I will hear. We get this impression of, of God and us so close together um, that we hear each other speak, um, that we are bringing joy to each other. He talks about um, that no more shall there be an infant that lives just a few days or an old person who does not live out a lifetime, for one who dies at a hundred years will be considered a youth. It talks about um, us building houses and inhabiting them, planting vineyards, eating their fruit. We get this language of the wolf and the lamb feeding together, the lion eating straw like the ox. Now, we get this vision of unity. And I think this is really overwhelmingly important for us if we want to understand the prophetic hope of peace. Um, it's this idea that, that humans and God are united. Yes, that's awesome. But also, we're united to each other, right? And, and the old people are united to the young. And the last generation is united to the next generation. And the people are united to the land. And the people are united to the animals. And even the animals come together. It's this beautiful picture. This is the good news, right? That this shalom might come. By the way, there's a little bit of bad news in this as well. I, I don't know if you noticed. Um, but the lion eats straw like the ox and the wolf and the lamb live together. And so um, I am here to tell you that we will be vegetarians in heaven. Sorry. Okay. Um, other than that, it's really good, right? Really good news. And maybe there'll be like the impossible burger in heaven. I don't know. Um, that I, I want to suggest that this idea of this unity, of this coming togetherness, of, of this peace of God is really different from our world's idea of winning through power. That it's not about being the biggest or being the best, but somehow we're dependent on each other. Tim Keller has a wonderful sermon where he talks a little bit about this. Uh, and he says um, that you can imagine our lives as threads, right? These, these threads that God throws out. Uh, and everyone 
um, has incredible value. Every one of us is, is eternally significant. We are made in the image of God, which is a beautiful, powerful thing. Um, but it's so tempting for us um, in our lives to think that our goal is just to get to the top of the pile, right? To, to make our thread shine a little bit bigger or brighter than someone else's. Um, that our goal is, is to be um, strongest, fastest, smartest, richest, most successful. But Keller says, if I threw a thousand threads on the table, they wouldn't be a fabric. Can't do anything with that yarn. They'd just be threads lying on top of each other. Threads become a fabric when one has been woven over and under and around and through every other one. They become valuable when they're united. They become stronger and richer and warmer when when they are woven together, when they become one almost indistinguishable thing. Keller says, um, this is God's vision of shalom, right? Not that, that the best threads would rise to the top, but that the weak and the strong and the old and the young and, and people and land and animals and all creation and God and humanity would be interwoven into this new thing that's not about winning as much as it is about togetherness. Isn't this exactly what Advent is about? Advent isn't the story of the powerful God using His power to defeat us or defeat evil or defeat sin. It's about God giving up His power, becoming one of the most powerless things we can imagine, right? A little baby. And becoming interwoven into our lives so much so that God for a time cannot feed Himself that God for a time has to be changed at night, that God for a time is wholly dependent, interdependent on the lives of the people that He made. That's an incredible thing that God does, right? And, and in so doing, I think God captures um, or expresses this concept that, that His goal isn't that we rise to the top, um, but that we um, come together and become one. So what does that look like for us if we're called to be um, makers of that kind of peace? Uh, I think it means that sometimes our peacemaking doesn't come through winning but through losing. Sometimes it's about being righteous instead of being right. So even our enemy has a chance for redemption. In 404 A.D., um, there was a bishop in the city of Constantinople named John Chrysostom, famous guy, big deal, okay? Uh, he was famous because he was a reformer. So even at that time, um, he was very much on the side of the people, and he had concerns that the clergy were becoming too powerful and influential. He was a little bit worried about the nobility and the elites, and he came into a lot of conflict with um, the higher-ups, especially uh, the emperor and his wife. The emperor at the time was Arcadius, and his wife was uh, Eudocia. Because of some of that conflict, at some point he was exiled from his position in Constantinople. Um, but there was such an uproar in the city and outside of it that the emperor and his wife relented and brought John back. And shortly after they brought him back, um, 
they hatched a new idea. The empress, Eudocia, wanted to have a statue of herself placed in the main church, John's church, the main church in Constantinople. Uh, It was a church called the Hagia Sophia. Uh, I'm not sure if you've heard of it, but the Hagia Sophia means church of wisdom or holy wisdom. And the Hagia Sophia, even today, is considered one of the great wonders of the world. It's an unbelievably gorgeous building. At the time, however, this was the original building, um, not the one that exists today. And even then, it was pretty extraordinary. I mean, it was the biggest church in the biggest city in the Roman Empire. And so they wanted to say, hey, let's, let's show our power. Let's put a statue of Eudocia in the church. That'll really show John. Uh, John, as you might imagine, did not like the idea of statues to political figures decorating his sanctuary. So he threw up a stink and argued and complained and preached, and they had another excuse to get rid of him. So they exiled him. They actually excommunicated him. And they thought, finally, we got rid of the troublemaker. And now uh, that we've won we can put our statue in the church and show everybody that we've won. And, and the day before that's supposed to happen, the congregation, John's congregation, gets together and they discuss what to do. And, and they, they don't decide um, to go to war and they don't decide uh, that they're going to cave in to the demands of the emperor. They decide there's only one course available for them. And so the night before the statue is to be put in to the Hagia Sophia, the congregation burns their church down. See, the emperor thought they cared about the building. They didn't care about the building. They cared about the gospel. They cared about making a point. They cared about this idea that that we worship Christ and not people. But they also, they actually a little bit cared about the emperor. A little bit. uh, They cared about the empress who didn't get the message. And they thought, maybe this is a way. Maybe Maybe we win not with power but with weakness. Maybe we win by losing. Maybe we change your minds and change your hearts by showing you what actually matters at our faith. Maybe we have to burn down our idols to help the world burn down theirs. Uh, Okay, neat. Cool story, Jim, but not very practical, and we really don't want to burn our church building down. Um, Yeah, okay, agreed. Let's let's not burn the church down. We will burn the mortgage, but not the church. but, but, but here's the thing. I, I know it's not really practical. I know it's not always practical to say that instead of trying to win, we're going to try to be peacemakers. But find me a story in the Bible that's defined by its practicality. Find me a time in the Bible where people said, hey, this is the most rational, reasonable thing for us to do. There's 5,000 people. You've got five pieces of bread and two fish. Let, we can take care of this. Right? Find me a story in the Bible that says, hey, um, we're about doing it the way the world does it. Because I'm not sure that's our story. I think our story is the story of a God who was all about peacemaking, who was willing to win through losing, by even losing his life, not just for his friends, but for his enemies, so that they might have the opportunity to be caught up in the togetherness um, that he desired for them that they might be um, made into that shalom of God. Uh, And so when Zechariah talks about the dawn from on high that breaks upon us, I think he's talking not about uh, the coming conquering king, but about the birth of a little powerless baby boy. The, The most powerful being in the universe interwoven into our lives 
I think he's talking about the light that rises over an empty garden tomb. See, the, the secular hope is that if there's just enough power, we can beat down the other guys. Um, that if there's just enough killing, we can kill all the killers. There's just enough violence, we can, we can fend off the violent. And, and the, the hope of the gospel is different. The prophetic hope uh, is that it's, it's dying that stops killing. It's peace that stops violence. It's, it's forgiveness that heals guilt and conquers despair. And so, our challenge in this season is to remember that our goal is not uh, to arm the lamb so it can fight off the wolves, but that the wolf and the lamb and the lion all lie down together because the lion and the lamb, the, the lamb lies down first. He gives his life. This is the hope of God's shalom, God's peace, righteousness, not rightness. And that's our job to be impractical peacemakers. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Thanks be to Him. Amen.